Greetings and welcome. I am your host, Jason Miles. And thank you for joining us for another episode of this is Revolution Podcast. Uh, this is our bi-monthly stream with our good friends Matt and David over at Left Reckoning. But David is on break and won't be joining us. But we still have a very informative show for you planned nonetheless. After the show, if you're a patron, we'll be doing a recap of the Give Them a Revolution live show uh, that happened this past Sunday at the Terragram Ballroom in beautiful, sunny Los Angeles, California. Real quick, a couple of things before I bring in the fellas. If you haven't done it yet, please hit sub- like, hit subscribe, and of course, don't forget to hit that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live. Now that I'm done with the live show, there's a lot more stuff we have in store for you guys for the end of the year show-wise. We're going to be adding more stuff, even more stuff. Just yesterday, we did our monthly Mau Mau Hour with Pascal Robert and Dr. Paul McComb, where they discussed the current situation in Haiti. If you haven't seen it, go check it. It's up now. If you want to show your support for TIR... Then let the people know with TIR merchandise. Who doesn't want to have Pascal Robert's smiling face on a mouse pad, on a mug, or on a tee? www.thisisrevolutionpodcast.com where you can get all that stuff. Also, news surfaced recently on the passing of Mike Davis. I got the chance to interview Mike Davis early last year, and I've posted the clip of our conversation where he speaks about the failures of the Bernie campaign after his defeat in 2016 and 2020, and so much more. Davis's work has been instrumental in what I do here on TIR. Uh, when Ben Burgess was down here in Mexico, we had uh, a good conversation uh, about about Davis. And I remember us talking about the life that he led, the amazing life that he led, and how he chose to go out on his own terms, surrounded by loved ones and family, still sending out messages of hope for the left until the end. If you haven't done it, check out City of Courts, a very prescient read. Now, let me bring in your Thursday night revolutionary reckoning news crew. First and foremost, let me bring in my homie, my dog. My co-host, my co-pilot, the man of the Mau Mau Hour, Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. How are you? Doing all right, comrade Jason. Had a great Mau Mau Hour. Also, if you want to check out a couple of appearances I've done recently, uh, talking about the situation in Haiti, I was on Pod Damn America last week, and I also did the Brianna Joy Gray Bad Faith Podcast. Did you let Brianna know that I think her and I need to be a Wakanda of podcasting power couple? I do not want to go down that particular route. What is it going to take for her to notice me? Notice me. I, I, she, we, she, we've been on. She's been on our show. Yeah, no, yeah. She's just, she's just, she's playing hard to get. 
I uh, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> How mad would the internet be if uh, we forced that love vote? No. <laughs> no. no. Not gonna happen. I didn't know. I didn't know that the magic was in you. Uh, before we bring in Matt Leck, I need to bring in the faceless, headless voice of reason, M. Toussaint. Hello, hello. The quack continues. Did you see Andy Williams is back and he says, I haven't been here in weeks. <laughs> and Jason's trying to get me too. Who does that on purpose? <laughs> I don't know. Cruising for a bruising, this guy. Uh, on your left says, I would be a traitor to the online left. Dave, you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm totally fine with that. I'm fine with the thing that's not going to happen. Anyway. <laughs> that's great. When you see me in D.C., you will just be so mad. In D.C.? Are you allowed to go there, young man? Coming all the way live from New York City, you know him from reading too many books, playing video games. The He's the M2 son of the Majority Report. <laughs> and he's the Matt Leck of Left Reckoning. Matt Leck! Hello, everybody. You know, I heard you say Pod Damn America, and every once in a while I'll hear that and think Pod Save America. Yeah, no, Pascal was on Pod Save America. Like, oh, I, check that out. No, that, no, that would have been like the, the time I was on NPR because they got the wrong show. <laughs> oh, what show were they looking for? There's a show called This Is The Revolution, and I guess it's a black guy as well. Um, and both of us had, both of us, I think, had lost our Facebook accounts. But he wrote for Guardian, and um, the guy, the the research guy, ended up getting me on accident. And he was like, "Oh, your story is way more interesting." <laughs> so I was on NPR. I forget the name of their their big podcast. It was me and Shazana Zuboff. Hmm. Oh, of uh, the surveillance capitalism. Surveillance capitalism, yeah. Did you rip a hole into the, her thesis? Did, <laughs> did I rip? Did, we were on together for very short. They wanted because I got I, Facebook deleted my account because I wrote uh, uh, a thing about uh, the last woman to get uh, put to death, and she was mentally ill. Mentally, um, I don't want to say the R word. Hmm. The M2 sign. You say it because no one knows what you look like. No. Oh my Ashley God. Crowley said it on show and nobody cared. She did say it. <laughs> yeah, she did. Well, the R slur. Oh, I've got three books Matt Lett recommended. Pretty oh, yeah. He's been binging on books lately. Well, speaking of Matt Leck and reading, you recently have dug into City of Courts. I did on the, uh, you know, on the um, 
in the airport on the way back from LA, I decided I need to know something about this place as I leave it. And you know, it's amazing. I feel like uh, <laughs> I should have got to Mike Davis a long time ago. And uh, I feel, uh, you know, uh, I don't know why, you know, these, and there's, I, I, I knew Mike Davis by reputation mm-hmm. and like even had like, you know, people quote regular things that are like Mike Davis's. Um, it's like when you have a, Friend, like friends who are really into a band before you got into them and you mm-hmm. feel like well I can't get into like Portishead now because my roommate is just like a number one Portishead fan <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah it's uh, it's great it's amazing amazing book uh, City of Quartz um, great title it, when you read the chapter on uh, the hammer and uh, about policing and gang violence in Southern, basically all of California, because he talks about Oakland as well. Um, for me, that was just like, oof, it, it hits hits home. Um, speaking of hitting home, we are joined. We were afraid we weren't going to be able to get him, but uh, it looks like he was able to break free from the HR meeting um, over stormtrooper helmets. <laughs> Deep state, Cuba. The stormtrooper helmets thing is just what the deep state wants you to believe. Uh, I had to quell an Ewok rebellion in Sector 3. <laughs> Why are you laughing? So much fur, so much blood. Don't fall off the chair, Jason. Don't fall off your chair. I think I think I've finally positioned the chair where there's not enough, there's no more cords all around me. So I'm going to fall like I did last time because that was Very still good. the funniest shit ever. <laughs> I fell, the computer fell. <laughs> <laughs> Just yelling hello. And chat told you to call Nuevo Uno Uno. <laughs> you know what's scary? I don't even know who to call if there was an emergency. <laughs> Isn't it usually 911 or 199 119 in I'm most gonna, countries? I'm just going to yell. Nice. Okay. Hey, y'all. <laughs> hey, y'all. That black guy's yelling about scorpions again. <laughs> when my daughter was here, I tried to act all tough, like I wasn't scared of bugs. Nice. <laughs> She knows the real you. Scorpions are scary. The um, one of the toughest guys um I knew in high school, um Mike Bowie. You may have met him at the wedding. He tough enough to be recruited as a lumberjack, although wise enough not to turn it down. They recruit that. Um, he was working for a, a logging company, and it's it's like getting tapped for skull and bones or something. It's like we think <laughs> you've got what it takes. Um. Uh, to be a faller. You don't say logger. You don't say lumberjack. You say faller. And uh, I was with him in uh, Arizona when um, this tiny scorpion walked into the room that we were in, and he screamed in a register, like at an octave that I did not know he was capable of producing. Uh, Like jumped on the nearest elevated surface. Um, It was like the Bo Burnham spider thing. Uh, and I'm like, dude, it's, it's a, it's a bug. It's not even moving quickly. Um, you can step on it. (laughs) And, um, he's like, you step on it. You're crazy, man. Um, and it was the one time 
that my aim was true because normally I like I can't sink um, a basket that isn't a layup. But uh, mm. I picked up a shoe and I threw it across the room, nailed it, hit the scorpion, one and done. I, it's like that was a that became a man. <laughs> Just have stories of killing stuff tonight. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> rocking and rolling, buddy. Uh, I want to. I'm going to start off the the show tonight. There's something I wanted to talk to you guys about since it's the uh, electoral politicking season, or as what we say in the podcast world, busy time. <laughs> but there's some shenanigans going on in San Francisco. Uh, with election season heating up, many people that watch shows like this are going to be looking to support progressive or even socialist candidates in local or even federal races. There is hope at the ballots that the right person in a certain position can be the catalyst for transformative change in the electoral sphere, and we can oust the old guard and replace them with elected officials made in our image. Now, in San Francisco, there is some left-on-left political violence going on that caused SF supervisors to nix turning a Nordstrom's parking lot into 495 market rate units, with about 20% of those units set aside for affordable housing and even uh, housing some unhoused citizens in the city. Uh, This from the quote from the San Francisco Examiner. In addition to replacing a parking lot with housing, the 469 Stevenson Project by Build Incorporated would include 73 below-market affordable units, 40% of which would be reserved for current residents of the city. The community benefits that come with this project include 4,000 square feet of ground floor retail space dedicated to local nonprofits and community-serving retail. This is a quote from Lou Vasquez as main director of Build Incorporated. He also told supervisors, half of that will be leased to tenants for $1 a year and the other half for $1 a foot, considerably below current market rates. In addition, Vasquez says the project would provide $579,000 in funding for community programming, a parcel of land with the capacity for up to 20 affordable, additional affordable units, and an in-lieu fee equivalent to 50 uh, more additional units and funding for the arts, for homeless services, and for local employment programs. I'm sure all of this sounds great, and you're wondering, why would one oppose a project like this? Well, that opposition came in the form of Todd Co. and eight members of the San Francisco Board Supervisors against the project. Tyco is the Tenants and Owners Development Corporation. They own a thousand units of low-income housing in the South of Market or Soma area of San Francisco, and that is the area. Five units. Um, This is from the Chronicle. Todco is taking advantage of a law that allows owners of federally funded affordable housing buildings with Section 8 subsidies to re-syndicate their debt every 20 years, recapitalizing their portfolios by SAT credits and tax-exempt bonds. During that process, a market study analyzes current market rate rents in the neighborhood and what it costs an owner to keep a building affordable. If rents skyrocket and south of market, it can create a windfall for the property owner. In the case of Todco, it amounts to several million dollars, and that is according to their president. 
Todco is a major player in housing in the South Market area, and they use their war chest to be a political thorn in the side of some market rate housing builders, and they actually help support community organizations and progressive housing projects in the city. Now, the campaign to vote no on the parking lot conversion project cited environmental concerns and also, this no vote is a part of retaliation against board member Matt Haney, who's running against David Campos, former chief of staff for ousted SFDA uh, Chase Boudin. Both leftists. Haney is running against Campos for, state assemb- for a state assembly seat in this upcoming election. Now, is gentrification really stopped by continuing to have a valet parking lot for Nordstrom's? need for more progressives in positions of power, but how do we reckon with this left on violence? Saw something similar in New York City, Mickey Constant, Kristen Gonzalez. What can we learn from this moving forward into this election season? Uh, Pascal, what say you about this situation? This was a really interesting art, uh, series of events for me because what I found educational was that the internecine battling between the two proposed socialist or progressive candidates was so bad that there were enough force forces to put a kibosh on the whole plan for the development project just because the guy decided to run against Haney decided to run against Campos. Mm-hmm. The sheer decision to run against him demonstrated a, like almost this affront to the a, a certain established wing of the progressive party. And I think that what this tells us is that let's say that the progressives actually come to a point where they actually get power within the apparatus of the Democratic Party. That's not going to stop personal, professional, or aspirational decide, decisions or egos from getting in each other's ways and having people step on toes, as we've seen in some of the elections that you mentioned. So what this demonstrates is that the politics of personality and the personality of politics don't go out the window just because a comrade is on the, is on running as an opposition candidate to you in an election. Comrade on comrade violence is um, tragically commonplace, and it, to a certain extent, the maximalist dreams of the revolutionary left. Uh, right, and especially people who position themselves as leftist purists mean that even if you get a decent pragmatic concession from uh, within the system, uh, there's always room to trash it since it isn't um, revolutionary socialism, precisely. It doesn't matter how many people are helped. It doesn't matter uh, how much an improvement um, it, it would constitute. Doesn't matter if you're moving people from um, the streets or or encampments into permanent housing. It's always a letdown um, because the uh, intangible horizon, that mythic eschatology, that paradise is just over the horizon, and you can can always accuse somebody of being too soft. Um, even if they're delivering uh, tangible benefits. It's a very dangerous path uh, to tread, but unfortunately, all of us, even um, even further removed from uh, any tangible influence, 
experience it every day on Twitter. You just have to spend five minutes in a room with um, more than one leftist and somebody will uh, use the, the, the promised, um, the promised paradise as uh, a way to beat down any actual um, workable proposal in the here and now. Do you have anything you want to add, man? I mean, not a whole lot uh, besides like, yeah, it, it's, when it comes to gentrification, it seems like you need to get rid of the gentry uh, conditions that created gentry. Um, and, uh, uh, and it's interesting when you have like language being used um, that can be used by political um, folks that are, just, you can make these things that are fundamentally about um, like whose turn it is. Uh, sound as if they're about broader principle. And that's a pretty, um, uh, I think, damaging dynamic. What was interesting to me, too, and I know you guys, you know, outside of Cuba, and I don't know the last time he's been to San Francisco, that area um, has a lot of, you know, unhoused people living around it. Apparently, um, a car mowed through a bunch of people in tents and uh, injured uh, several people. There's been a lot of uh, stabbings and, and robberies in the area uh, because a lot of businesses left during COVID. So the promise to bring housing in a city that has a housing crisis, which is one of the big reasons why a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco in this area is $3,500 a month on average. Building units you know, is going to put people in housing. And the environmental impact that they cited was a Reagan era bill to stop homeless shelters from being built. You know, that was the tactic that was used. So it's interesting that you have this company, Tonco, which is a nonprofit uh, low income housing provider. And they actually provide a lot of funding for people running against uh, big time uh, billionaire backed candidates or any sort of uh, real estate lobby bills. They actually fund uh, leftist projects, if you will. But one of the critiques about them has been that all this money that they're getting, they're not using it to fix up their units. They're using it to have an enormous amount of political power. And what I find interesting is... um, I think there's a disconnect that uh, a lot of people have when we think about politics in general. And this is even going back to Los Angeles as so much gets focused on the race issue and racism within the city council. I mean, these are racial coalition politics and all these, not all these people, but a lot of those people that were in that room that have been somewhat disgraced by this, their reputations are now one person saying, you know, some things about a, council members kid um legacies of working with their own community that's how they got in politics in the first place especially people like gill you know that's the guy that wrote the uh the driver's license bill to get undocumented uh californians driver's licenses so they can have jobs and not just work you know under the table all the time so um and he also wrote the the first dream act um but his legacy now is going to be being in this room and, and not speaking out against language 
in a private meeting that he didn't know it was being recorded. Well, there's a there's a line from um, I can't remember the source, so I'm just going to say Game of Thrones. Um, One does not make peace with one's friends. And similarly, if you need to build coalitions, if you need to get votes, if you're horse trading, then you can't afford to play purity politics because the person that you're calling out can kill whatever proposal you want to bring up. Um, They can um, make the city council, uh, whatever body they're on, uh, ungovernable. And to what extent do you make nice with people that you find odious in order to deliver tangible benefits? And I mean, um, this, I know the source for this, um, Matt Crispin from Chapo Trap House has um, been pointing out that it appears that in the United States, there's such a failure of governance, um, a hollowing out of institutions, that the idea that you can elect somebody, that you could get uh, political power and then use it to improve people's lives is becoming more and more fanciful. But what you can do is punish and humiliate the people you don't like. Mm. And that's the consolation prize. Um, At least if my life isn't getting better, I can make someone I dislike suffer. And that when you, when that's the way that people interface in these decision-making bodies, then the only thing that can sufficiently lubricate um, the system is money in large enough quantities so that they all get rich. Um, And we shouldn't be surprised that the only way that any program gets passed anymore is with billions of dollars of giveaways to the most well-connected and influential groups for thousands of dollars of giveaways to everybody else. Tucson, you have something to add? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Pascal. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think of the axiom from the actual revolutionary leftist, Amilcar Cabral said, we don't do these things for ideas in people's minds. We do this to improve the condition of people's lives. And I think that part of the problem we have on the left is that we there are so people, so many of us who get stuck into our vision of what is perfection that we fail to realize is that the, this is about improving the condition of human beings. Now, of course, you should have principles that you don't want to sacrifice when you're negotiating with, as Cuba said, your enemies, that when, that will render your your idea nothing but simple, you know, vapidity that works on his terms. But that's different from arguing from a position of principle and realizing that people and human beings will be improved by the work that you do to change their condition. I think that if more of us had those, that that kind of worldview, we might go further on as a purported left. Tucson, you want to add something to Pascal's uh, comment? Um, I can't help but to notice how the not not um, sort of attention, but the environmental rules to tank the project. I intensely dislike that. It's such a shame that those those are are there and in place for for good reason. 
environmental impacts are on and all of that sort of thing. And uh, I hate I hate the ideas of being used to just you know play politics. I well, mean, and I understand that part of politics is personalities and pettiness. <laughs> the environmental impact report Sorry. I think was like a thousand pages, yeah. and uh, the environmental impact that they cited was it was going to be really tall <laughs> and and something about um, shadows shadows yeah <laughs> it, it's 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 look politics i think there's a lot of underestimation about politics sometimes and overthinking mm-hmm. about um you know almost uh, what was that movie with will smith and gene hackman enemy of the state level espionage if if it's not enemy of the state level espionage you know everyone Every U.S. bad contr- pulling all these magical strings. Um, you know, people kind of underestimate what really goes on, even at a local level. And we're seeing these local skirmishes become national news um, as these systems are being hollowed out. Yeah. That being said, Madlack, last week you wanted to talk it, about. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tucson. No, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. I just want to say I think it dissuades people from running. <laughs> you think it keeps people from running for office? I think it dissuades think, people from running for office. I think, and this is just my opinion, and you guys can call me all kinds of names in the comments. If you want to call me names, definitely leave them in the comments. Make those names count in the algorithm. And make sure you're clever. If I don't giggle, then you're not that clever. Um... I think there was a time, mostly with the boomer generation, where people felt like if you wanted to make a change in the world, you were going to make that change through the political sphere. You were going to organize unions, you were going to run for office, and that was how you were going to make substantive change. And through the financialization of the 80s, change was going to be made through your success. Philanthropic change is going to be the only way we can make change, and that's been doubled down on with tech success. Now we're seeing the political sphere even losing being an entryway into media. Maybe it always has been, but I feel like more so now. You get an instant blue check mark when you're running for office. So... It's an interesting time that we're in, trying to see who is serious and legitimate. Did I depress you enough? Yeah, it's also there's an obvious question. At what point do you give up um, entirely and retreat to the private sphere? Uh, that was one of the characteristics of um, late socialism in the Eastern Bloc, that the system was so ossified, so rigid, um, the idea of any kind of improvement, especially after the Prague Spring um, and its suppression, it it felt as though um, between then and Gorbachev that, that nothing could change. And as a result, the time and energy that people had to invest, they preferred to invest 
in their homes, in their families, mm-hmm. um, in the tangible personal connections that um, were fundamentally private. And right now, the American system continues to have this illusion of being open, this illusion of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but as possibility fades more and more, um, many of the people that you would like to be on LA city council or have some position of influence politically or economically, why, why would they put themselves through that for the, the tiny lottery ticket level of, um, success that you, that tiny little chance that, that everything will work out and you may actually get a building built if another comrade doesn't get in your way. And you end up with, um, and this has been the case since the, the eighties and financialization where the people who are most engaged in public processes at the municipal level, at the federal level, at the state level, are those who have a vested interest and see a very easy one-to-one correspondence of how they can translate that policy influence into their own private gain. So developers, um, Mm -hmm. peak um, corporate interests, the financial sector, um, and then billionaires who can, who have the resources to individually um, produce social change just by buying enough of the um, of the relevant policymakers. Well, wasn't that something that's, that they were saying about Fetterman, the guy in uh, the Philadelphia, that he uh, used his nonprofit to circumvent getting things done through the city because he didn't like the city government? It yeah. might. It might be the. And my question is, what did he get done? Because maybe that's just being smart. Mm-hmm. Speaking of being smart, Matt Leck is pretty smart, and he's pretty tall. Can he dunk? That's the question. I could dunk a women's ball, but I could never uh, fully. I could never really dunk a men's ball. I could like. I could like get it in and then yeah, grab it with one hand, but no. Didn't have that kind of leaping ability at six two. But. Cuba can dunk. A lot of people don't know that. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I only play Ewoks. Cuba <laughs> <laughs> is the Kurt Rambis to the Ewoks' uh, Spud Webb. <laughs> Jesus. I, thought, I think Tucson exploded. I thought that was the sound effect. <laughs> Who is Jesus? How's that noise still happening? (laughs) (laughs) Matt, tell us about comic uh, writer, comic comics, uh, not a joke man, Alan Moore, who wrote The Watchmen. Yeah, so I this is um I want to discuss this with you guys because I don't fully trust myself to be dispassionate about this as somebody who never really got into comic books and kind of felt like they're for nerds growing up. 
Um, so when I heard Alan wow. Moore, when I heard Alan Moore say this thing in 2012, uh, well, let me just get into this a little bit and then we can discuss. So Alan Moore, guy who did uh, the Watchmen, which I did enjoy that film. I, I read the graphic novel. Um, and also V for Vendetta, mm-hmm. which was also a big movie for me. Um, I remember that was the first thing I ever torrented illegally. Uh, so <laughs> the, I sort of backed up the uh, content of the film with my, uh, with learning how to do a, a torrent. Praxis. Exactly. And it, and it really like imprinted that movie onto me in a very like significant way, I think. Um, so I appreciate those a lot. And in two, th- well, so he's done with comics fast forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, he said, I'm definitely done with comics. I haven't done, uh, I haven't written one for getting on five years. Always love and adore the comics medium, but the comics industry and all the stuff attached to it is just, uh, just became unbearable. And he apparently had some uh, issues with the studios. I'm not uh, familiar with that, but uh, what he does say politically is interesting to me. As something we're talking about, like applying larger political meanings to maybe even petty uh, disputes. But to me, this rings true. Like when I, I worked for, um, Vice News uh, in 2015, and we I was researching an episode on uh, Hollywood, and one of the facts I came up for the panel to discuss was, it was in 2015, from then until 2020, there would be a new big budget comic book movie every two months, and uh, and that was on schedule, and it, that basically happened. We're on the other side of that now, mm-hmm. and I hate all of it. I, I hate. I don't have any interest in any of these movies. I do feel like they're for kids, and I'll just continue with what. You just uh, lost the left. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is why I want to get you guys. Uh, 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 so Moore says hundreds of thousands of adults are lining up to see characters and situations that had been created to entertain entertain the twelve year old boys and it was always 12 year old boys of 50 years ago i didn't really think that superheroes were adult fair i can share this actually uh here we go uh if you want to put that up jason i didn't really think that superheroes were adult fair i think that this was a misunderstanding born of what happened in the 1980s to which i must put up my hand to considerable share of blame though it was not uh, intentional when things like the watchmen started were first appearing uh, they were an awful lot of headlines saying comics have grown up. I tend to think that no comics hadn't grown up. There were a few titles that were more adult than people were used to, but the majority of comic titles were pretty much the same as they'd ever been. I wasn't comics. Uh, it wasn't comics growing up. I think it was more comics meeting the emotional age of the audience coming the other way. Uh, and then he said, I said around in, and this is where I first uh, like sort of became familiar with more. I said around about 2011 that I thought it had a serious, had serious and worrying implications for the future. If millions of adults were queuing up to see Batman movies, because that kind of infantilization that urge towards simpler times, simpler realities that can very often be a precursor to fascism. He points out that when Trump was elected in 2016 and uh, when we ourselves took a bit of a strange detour in our politics. Uh, many of the biggest films were superhero movies. So that, I like that. Um, and I'm just wondering, is he being fair? I, what are your guys' relationship with sort of comic culture? To me, I feel like like it is a symptom. Obviously, it's not. <laughs> it's definitely not the cause. I, I think we, had a, 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 we didn't have a great culture before uh, the last 10 years of comic book stuff. But I'm just curious what you guys think about him drawing that connection between – 
far the far right and infantilization and you see a lot of these people online they're like this is what they took from us and it's like a picture of like mm. a super nintendo and shit like that and <laughs> i think there's a, i think there is a, a, an interesting uh connection kuba and i did a show a while back me kuba and jean actually will watch marvel and star wars stuff um when we have time we'll watch it and then we'll actually talk about it uh and of course, Gene plays games and is even more into that world. But me and Kuba did a show after the Falcon and Winter Soldier show because that show had a lot of potential to be interesting with the uh, with the uh, Flag Smashers. Remember the Flag Smashers? Um, if, if you know about the whole snap and, and half the population goes away, the storyline was, well, they came back. But while they were gone, certain nations uh, needed help. Israel's like, look, we lost half our people. We fucking, <laughs> hey, you guys want us to not fuck with you, Palestine? <laughs> so all these warring nations found peace in losing half the population, right? In rebuilding a world for five years. And then uh, after five years, everyone comes back. So there became a militant faction called the Flag Smashers that uh, were trying to bring it back to what it was like in five years when everyone was gone, when there was peace and there were no borders. That was another thing that, that was a really big point in, the, in that uh, series, that this was a borderless world that we had lived in for for five years according to the comics and then it made a pivot as kuba said to kind of turning the flag smashers into something maybe aspirational into uh al-qaeda everything every enemy of the status quo eventually defaults to al-qaeda that's part of the uh, infantilism of um superhero comics and I think that Alan Moore's best stuff is what he did um, like from hell or um, um, I think that there is a sub genre or a segment of comic book culture, which is much more serious, much more symbolic, much more abstract. Um, A lot of the image or vertigo titles, um, can afford to be more thoughtful, speculative, uh, introspective, and they never really break out, um, which is fine. Um, but it's when we talk about comic culture, it's really Marvel to a certain extent, uh, DC image. Um, um, yes, the, the kind of, uh, the, um, you know, the spawns, the, um, walking dead, the, the blockbusters, which generally are um, genre storylines with high production values. And that's what type of movies they turn into as well. And sometimes they're fun. Um, they're always colorful. They, you can see the formula being adhered to in real time. Every once in a while, you see the glimmerings of an original idea or something daring that then gets uh, wrapped back up. Um, the only um, 
the only comic book property that um, I was surprised by was a Legion, uh, which was uh, mm. on FX, which is technically yeah. an okay. offshoot of Marvel. It's a spinoff, but it was basically they gave a bunch of very talented art school kids a bottomless budget <laughs> and then they just ran with it and they produced something like a bewildering but beautiful and intricate dreamscape. Um, very much art for art's sake. I'm not suggesting anybody go there for agitprop, but um, so it is original and it is striking. It is bracing. Well, I, I think we forget that Superman in 1979 was a game. Yeah, the boys is fine. Um, uh, that's... Yeah. I, I still haven't seen it. I still haven't seen it. But Superman was a game changer, Matt, in my opinion, for superhero movies moving forward. And when I say game changer, I mean being able to produce a child story and have it be a, have it have an emotional connection for adults. If you think about Superman, and even if you watch those old serials from the 40s and 50s, it's very silly, right? This guy not really flying, that's mildly overweight bending plastic or rubber guns in, in, in a knot um, and telling kids to you know eat their vegetables is kind of what Superman is in, in its early iteration. And by 79, there's this deep story um, that you get that uh, I don't remember if it won any awards, but I know it definitely was nominated for awards. Might have won a special effects award. And then you get its sequel um, and you get uh, Batman in 89. Uh, which also the first Batman was in that same vein, a child story um, that is dark and gritty enough uh, to connect with an adult audience. And Marvel learned moving forward uh, that you can now have it all. You can have the 12 year old child as well as the 40 year old child to the point where there's even a toy market aimed at 40 year old children like myself <laughs> um so it's been kind of interesting to watch and there's a great interview with todd phillips i believe his name is who made the joker and i, I was hesitant on seeing the joker because i actually did read a lot of the press that came out about it saying that it was this horrible movie and it was pro uh, uh incel and all this other stuff and then i heard an interview with the guy that actually uh wrote it made it and he said that he was at a premiere of a movie that he knew was going to flop and as he was walking around talking to his agent <laughs> about what he was going to do next with his career because he knew this movie he made was a flop he looked up and saw a billboard for a superhero movie and he felt like kind of how you feel this crap is taking over and the only way i can tell a real story about neoliberalism is if i mask it in a superhero story and he started kind of spitballing this idea of the joker as a hero and batman's father as a villain and it took years to get made um, as these things do but it did get made. I did watch Joker. I thought it was I thought it was pretty good. I watched uh, what was that? Uh, go ahead. Joker is European socialist realism pretending to be a comic book movie. That's what mm. makes it good. 
Mm. Um, it's about institutions failing. It's about the psychology of uh, a young man. Uh, it's about the crisis of masculinity, um, mm. how people unravel under pressure. And he only puts on the makeup in the last uh, last act. Mm-hmm. Um, so you go in there thinking that you're going to be seeing um, Batman um, clubbing a, an evildoer to death, but it ends up being an examination of uh, society in decay. Hey, that's what I mean. It's interesting you say that because, like, that. Oh, depressing uh, as hell. It's very bleak. I mean, <laughs> it's not a good time. Don't don't go on a date to see the Joker <laughs> unless she's a very special lady, unless they are a very special person. Right, but it's funny because like the things that I've enjoyed, sort of related to this genre, are the Joker. I, I thought was good. Um, Deadpool, which is like a satire of all this stuff, and The Boys, which is also sort of a satire of yes. all the things. It's just it's just interesting to me, like because I studied um, westerns, like how westerns became sort of the hegemonic cultural expression during mm-hmm. Vietnam, for instance. And you're talking about like military interventionism and we're the good guys with guns and that sort of thing. It's just it's just interesting to like for me to like theorize like why certain things are happening at the same time and like those are so different than like these massive the ones that i i I never watch are like the big and and i guess i've seen a thor the first thor movie that was kind of funny but like where they're all coming out of like portals in the universe (laughs) and like confronting like the bad guy in the milky way like i don't know it's just wild to me like how that has such a uh, such a i guess it's colors and explosions and stuff like that it's the fast and the furious are you, a fan of, are you a fan of the Frankfurt School at all? Or are you kind of not into their analysis of popular culture and its utility in capitalism, one-dimensional? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I read the Frankfurt School. Like there was some of the first sort of like um, like downstream of Marxist things I was exposed to in grad school. But I genuinely like you know I haven't read in a while. Oh, okay. She so, I mean, because you asked, you asked a simple, a good question. He's like, do these things have the possibility to create a reactionary tendency? And I think mm. that when we look at the production in terms of how, in you know, we the state interfaces with media at some capacity and how propagating certain ideas exists within the capacity to maintain certain hegemony of notions within the body politic. I think there's a possibility that there is a kind of reactionary kind of attachment to certain narratives that people people can be can develop over time. I don't think it has to be completely conspiratorial per se, but I I, I don't think that in complex societies that things like media, uh, image, film, uh, advertisement, marketing exist outside the apparatuses of actual social control. Mm. I mean, to go back to City of Quartz, Mike Davis has a section I'm just getting through now about uh, noir and mm-hmm. the sort of like um, and the sort of misperceptions you might have and what was actually going in Los Angeles. So interesting. And I think that there's also a relatively small number of um, basic narratives that get recycled and refracted and reskinned. So um, there's Superman, which is uh, a god hero will save us. There's uh, Batman, which is you have to break the rules uh, and take 
things into your own hands. Um, mm. And those building blocks can sometimes tap into um, political, uh, ideological dispositions and, and amplify them. But that's not necessarily the, um, the purpose going in. You're just defaulting to one of the, the five or six fundamental superhero narratives. Uh, the, it's interesting how much the Punisher gets embraced by, uh, for instance, uh, law enforcement, right? There's no shortage of um, police bros with uh, the skull logo. And the whole ethos of it is that the police suck too much to do their job, so you have to do it for them. Um, and I think that that's a case where you do have an that quasi-fascist ideological affinity beginning to bleed into having real-world consequences, even if the original had no political uh, aspirations or motivations behind it. MT, you want to add something? Or not? <laughs> Is MT behind us again? And, uh, in time, maybe? Uh, she's like, she's doing, meeting at some vigilante justice. <laughs> vigilante justice. I think there's a. I think she's having problems with her her audio. She's having tech issues. So I will I will not um, leave your MT will leave her her uh, comments in the chat. She has a lot to say. So much like Terminator X, she's going to say it with her hands. Uh, but one, Alan Moore, a fun fact, um, he has mostly been writing um, erotic fairy tales with esoteric uh, chaos magic uh, subtexts. That's what he does when he doesn't do comics. Um, cool and ask, I wish him the best for it. That. Let not, let's not ask how you know that, Kubo. My, my, my. <laughs> Google alerts. But uh, I'll let you, let you get what the terms are. Now, Kuba, what are you talking about today? And I hate to be that guy, but you're going to have to make it somewhat quick. So um, the uh, U.S. government is planning on introducing fast track legislation for defense procurement, allowing weapons manufacturers and other major defense contractors to lock in multi-year contracts, often non-competitive, in order to resupply the materiel that's been depleted by um, the war in Ukraine and all of the NATO transfers uh, to Ukrainian forces in that fight. And one, this is essentially a rearmament bill. You're creating the conditions for a massive scale up of defense spending and an increase in US armaments overall. Um, two, it reflects the underlying strategic economic weakness of NATO compared to Russia in this conflict. The fact that a war, which granted has gone on for two and a half years, but it's limited to a single theater, uh, 
uh, single adversary has drawn down uh, weapon stockpiles, not just in the United States, but across NATO countries. Uh, for instance, Germany is having to scrub some of its its own rearmament plants just because of shortage of available uh, weapon systems and um, waiting times to purchase new ones. That we can see an imbalance, an industrial imbalance between the, the two sides. We don't know how much longer the NATO side can sustain supporting Ukraine to the extent that it has simply because of the difficulties in producing material at scale, at speed. Russia has uh, revamped enough of its Soviet-era industrial base so that it can indigenously produce relatively quickly, relatively cheaply, uh, replacement parts as well as munitions and, and small arms uh, for its own forces. It can also tap in stockpiles from countries as diverse as uh, China, North Korea, um, Iran, the Middle East, uh, because of the wide dispersal of Soviet legacy systems in the, in the, the non-Western aligned world. The, finally, <clears throat> this is another place where the energy weapon and sanctions on commodities and fuels produced by Russia is coming back to impact uh, the West's own industrial capability. Um, major consumers of energy are things like the steel industry or um, uh, automobiles, heavy machinery, and these are precisely the industries that are essential to maintaining and developing um, military supplies and advanced weapon systems. These are severely impacted by the rising cost of energy, especially in Europe, uh, as well as other um, strategic commodities shortages. So you have the industry that you need to rearm Europe shutting down in Europe as a result of the economic consequences of the war. Now, I it's an open question of whether there's enough of a commitment to the fight in uh, Ukraine among European leaders, especially to divert scarce um, resources from consumer needs and public goods into munitions and weapons. But that looks like what it might take if you want to achieve your military targets and your military goals uh, with respect to Ukraine and Russia. That's what I want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Pascal and uh, Matt, you guys have anything to add? There's too much to think about in one turn, man. <laughs> Matt, do you have anything you want to add? Uh, let's see. I'll, I'll try to nibble in somewhere. Um, yeah, I guess my hmm. um, no, I don't know. I don't know where to even begin. Like it, it's interesting to me. Like the for the things that stuck out to me were um, oh these big giant um, uh, you know war companies 
uh, want a signal from the government. And my understanding is like that. Basically, we're saying we're not going to we're going to replenish these reserves non-competitively. So massive. Uh, 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 what's that? Lawmakers are expecting this war to last. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's just interesting. Like we can we can like the like um, Lockheed Martin or whatever, like we'll help. But just you need to send us a signal. And that signal is like years of, uh, you know, non-competitive profit. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah, the, we'd love to save democracy, but, you know, shareholders. I mean, <laughs> what, 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 that tell, what, what all this tells me is that, as Kuba as has indicated, that these guys are in it for the long haul and that this is not going to be a short skirmish or they don't, they don't plan it to be a short skirmish. So what does that mean for all of the chess players on the board, all of this talk about multipolarity, Changing the paradigm, the America's position in the world as a as the global hegemon of record, the rise of China, all of this stuff, the the condition of of China and Russia vis-a-vis Africa, the rest of the continent, all of these questions still are left unanswered, and we're still in this period of chaos, while we're using Ukraine as a proxy for a fight with Russia. And I'd also point out that just because they plan on this being a long conflict. Um, even if Ukraine dies down, these are going to be the vehicles for remilitarizing the United States for the next theater or the potential China, uh, a potential China war. The, but just because that's what they expect doesn't mean that's what's going to happen. Um, for instance, the Europeans may simply experience what this type of remilitarization costs them. Mm -hmm. Um, starting in November, December, and by February, they want to throw in the towel. There's no appetite for that level of, uh, we're not even talking about austerity because we're not, it's not budget cuts across the board. It's transfers from families, individuals, consumers, cities, communities into the hands of the military and military producers. That's not that easy a sell to a public that already is facing war fatigue. So the goal, clear, uh, the goal has been set up as a maximalist sort of Atlanticist military industrial complex um, fever dream. Mm-hmm. Whether and they could very well get away with it, right? This isn't Scooby Doo, you know. There's no guaranteed happy ending, um, but. Incompetence is also a thing, um, and they may fail, um, not because the good guys triumph, but because they underestimated the opportunism of the European far right or the um, resilience of American industry, for instance. There might be labor shortages that cripple um, the ability for steel production in the United States to, to phase up to adequate levels, possibly. Uh, we, there's all of these variables that we certainly don't have the the time, the resources to, to go all the way down that rabbit hole. And here's the thing. Neither does the Pentagon, right? It's not that they couldn't if they wanted to. It's that they would rather do other things because it's too depressing if you start. Um, so these plans could fail, but we are seeing, as you said, Pascal, a long-term vision for a global conflict. 
what is the blowback? And and now we are over an hour, so this is part of the champagne room. This is really what uh, what patrons get. We take deeper dives. So if you are new to this is revolution, or you're not a patron, don't get to be part of the champagne room. You're witnessing some champagne right now. That's what she said. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to hit it. I was expecting the more you know harp strings. <laughs> yeah, no, I just wanted to hit that one because it's funny. Um, is there going to be a far right blowback? I was actually watching something before we went on. Uh, Vice put out this thing uh, about the history of the far right in America and how uh, a lot of it is tied up with the military uh, going all the way back to the Civil War. So do you think that there is going to be a European blowback a la Vietnam era where you start to get an even larger outgrowth um, because now you have a militarized, very well uh, militarized far right. I don't think that the, I think that the demilitarization of Europe is something that is difficult for Americans to imagine because the United States is so disproportionately militarized compared to, to almost virtually any country in the world. Um, the footprint of how many soldiers the United States has is maybe doesn't seem that extravagant comparatively, but the space that the military has economically, culturally dwarfs anything in, uh, in Europe, even the French with their Bastille day parades, it's um, the the influence of the military on the rest of society, um, on the national imagination, is much lower. The and they're not going to get anywhere near a draft either, which is typically the vector that um, converts war fatigue into uh, protest. Mm. But um, if there's differential energy prices for military industry versus people heating their homes so they don't freeze, that actually could serve as that vector to turn um, uh, opposition to war into a, a popular issue. Uh, my anxiety is that the energy of that opposition will be channeled into identitarian far-right movements. You'll have Marine Le Pen come out um, as not anti-war as much as pro-Putin. And that's, that's very dangerous because you end up with an opposition to the conflict in Ukraine, which isn't grounded in a pursuit of peace, but like hashtag not my war. We shouldn't be fighting Russians. We should be fighting Muslims. We should be fighting. We should be sinking. We shouldn't be sinking the Moskva and the Black Sea. We should be sinking refugee boats in the Mediterranean. And it's a little like uh, the pod Save America guys had like a squirrel, a blind squirrel finding a nut had a good take on the uh, attacks on AOC related to the Ukraine letter. If you attack indiscriminately anyone on the left, um, anyone in the Democratic Party, uh, 
who advocates a diplomatic solution, then you're giving Tucker Carlson a monopoly on peace. Mm. And I, that is something that I dread uh, because the consequences of it are, um, are dire. Even if you get the peace that you want, you're also going to get more conflict that you don't. And it's going to empower some of the, the worst people uh, in the political spectrum. Tucson, do you have anything to say in closing? Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's great. It's been a lot of uh, tech issues. Um, I wanted you to expand on something, Gruba. What the Pod Save people said. And why were you listening to Pod Save anyway? It's his favorite show. The um, <laughs> Well, you know, one doesn't choose the files that they are assigned. Um, <laughs> <laughs> The um, the Tucker Carlson piece thing. I, w- I wanted to, uh, if you could expand on that. The right now, uh, Tucker Carlson, he is very effectively captured an anti-systemic right critique of um, not just the Biden administration, but kind of the established system of American liberal democracy with, and it's some, it's what we've heard before many times, globalists, um, socialists, minorities, um, right. And the proposals are America first. We have to look after our own people, welfare for the worthy support for the worthy, you know, Christians, families, whites, but certainly native-born Americans, not immigrants, and that we have these Atlanticist, globalist, warmongers um, in the deep state or unelected establishment that are driving these conflicts for their own ends, and they don't like you real Americans. Um, That critique leads him to a certain policy positions which aren't always crazy. For instance, maybe we shouldn't be fighting a war in Ukraine. Maybe ending the war is a good idea. Um, Now, if he gets credit for it, because he's the only person with a major platform making that final argument, not talking about the uh, giant iceberg of reactionary ideology below it, just the Ukraine, just the peace in Ukraine argument, Um, then people who's, it's kind of like the one issue voter thing. If that's the most important thing for you, and he's the only one making that argument, well, regardless of how you feel about the rest of the iceberg, he's your choice. And maybe you can hope that once he or his anointed political candidates make the deal with Putin and establish peace, we can get rid of them and and return to sanity or Barack Obama or, or whoever. But that one positive um, 
item could be the way that could be the Trojan horse that allows a reactionary program to become the, the dominant agenda for the United States. And not only that, but if you deliver that piece, then you have massive political capital in order to implement that reactionary agenda. I see. Thank you so much for that. And again, I mean, I'm, I, I feel like I should apologize because it's just depressing, right? I've ruined everyone's day, but... <laughs> I mean, you see the right salivating over the opportunity to uh, achieve that monopoly. Just Tucker's the only one saying it. It's going to be interesting midterms. It's going to be real interesting midterms. But uh, I I thank you, Matt, for joining us. I do want to ask you, I know it is late where you are in NYC, but we're going into our uh, champagne room and I wasn't sure if uh, Bajlan had hit you up earlier and asked if you were going to join us as we talked about the live show. Oh, I'm going to duck out, uh, unfortunately. Gotcha. But, I know it's uh, late. It was yeah, great perfect. to see you guys. Blame Griscom. Blame Griscom. Yeah. That's the hashtag. Blame Griscom. <laughs> but this was, a, this was, I think this was a very good news show. We got, we went over, so you guys got bonus material. And uh, I think we killed it. Here it comes! <laughs> That's audio for me dunking on Ewoks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much. I will not be in Saturday as I will be making my journey up north to the Bay Area to see my kid. Very excited for. It's Halloween. It's going to be a fireman. He called me this morning. 6.30 in his fireman costume and with a whistle. I didn't know the costume came with a whistle. She proceeded to blow very loudly and showed me his fireman axe. He said, Daddy, this isn't for hurting people. It's for helping people. <laughs> right? So I mean, context based. But. <laughs> <laughs> Some people to have too many fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's uh, that's what I'll be doing. And Pascal and Toussaint are going to do a show all about Kanye West on Saturday. So. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. It's, it's not uh, directly about Kanye. It's all Kanye all the time. <laughs> Nigga, what? Exactly. That's what I said. Hopefully we can offer some commentary that hasn't been given yet. Oh, I definitely think there will be commentary that hasn't been given yet. But it's not going to be all about Kanye. But there's definitely going to be Kanye talk. So if you guys want to jump in Saturday, 9 a.m. Pacific time. 12. 12 p.m. Easter. Everyone else on the screen's time. Mm-hmm. And on that note, we are out. Out.